Good afternoon. This is the Cato Daily podcast for Friday, March second. Johan Norberg, previously a fellow at Timbro, a Swedish free market think tank, is now the globalization expert at the Center for New Europe in Brussels. His book, In Defense of Global Capitalism, had been translated into English and was published to wide acclaim. He gave the keynote address at the Cato Club 200 retreat in 2006. The speech has been reprinted for the winter 2007 edition of Cato's Letter. In today's podcast, Johan will be speaking about well that speech. Reading your book in defense of global capitalism and your numerous writings and your recent Cato's Letter, it's pretty clear to me that you are a staunch defender of free markets and globalization. But how can you always present such an unqualified and optimistic defense to a very hotly debated issue? I think that one of the reasons might actually be that I haven't always believed in these things. I didn't used to believe in modern industrial society and big business and things like that. So I never took it for granted. I never took anything for granted, but really thought there were so many problems with it. And then I'm just so convinced by the facts, by what's going on in the world, when we can see so clearly how. Mankind has actually created the best living standards that the world has ever seen. Just look around for a minute. We can see that around 50 people, more than 50 people, are being lifted out of extreme poverty every minute around the clock. And every minute, while we're talking, reading, working, we can see that our life expectancy is being increased by 15 seconds or something like that. So we see something amazing happen. For all its faults, for all its problems, free markets and globalization is creating a wonderful world. You live in Sweden, a country known for its generous social democratic policies. How would you say the welfare state has impacted living standards there? Living standards are fairly okay here, even if. Sweden moved to the United States. I think we would be the fifth poorest American state. So there are some problems there. But this is actually one of the things that make me a bit of an optimist. In Sweden, we've seen so many problems: taxes, regulations, a lot of obstacles for entrepreneurship, for free markets, and yet. In talented individuals, thinkers, innovators, and businesses have increased average incomes by something like eightfold in a bit more than 100 years. So, even though we make so many big mistakes, we see so many heroic efforts from people, from businesses, to do things.、Uh, when it comes to the social democracy and, and their policies, we can see that up until the 1970s, they didn't really interfere with this in a way that made Sweden exceptional around the world. Sweden actually, until the I think 1960s, something like that, Sweden had lower taxes than the United States. And that was the period when Sweden was really one of the wealthiest countries in the world. It's after that, when we began to see massive redistribution, high taxes, that Sweden has began to lag behind. From the 1970s, I think we've dropped from place four to place 14 in the average income league in the OECD. So I'm optimistic. Big mistakes doesn't have to destroy everything, but we can clearly see that they do produce some problems. Okay, in Cato's letter this winter, you depict the entrepreneur as the hero of our time. How do you come to this idea? Well, first of all, I'm just amazed by looking at basically anything. Just turn your head around and look at the things you've got—the computers, the cars, the modern technology, the furniture. Where does all this come from? Well, we know that once upon a time it was an idea in someone's mind. Someone had to begin to look at the market, look at the opportunities of how to produce this and how to enter the market, get the financing for it, and create the. 
production and the distribution methods and facilities. This is an heroic effort. If we look at the classical explanation of what an heroic uh, adventure is all about, for example, depicted by Joseph Campbell in his The Hero with a Thousand Faces, it is about something happening. The uh, adventurer, the future hero, finds that he or she must do something to save the world, <laughs> to make the world a little bit better, or to fight against a big threat. And it takes a lot of difficulties and problems and vicious enemies. And during the way, thanks to intelligence, hard work and friends the, the hero makes along the way, it works out. And in the end, the world is a better place. Now, that sounds to me a lot like the heroic entrepreneurial epic in many ways. If we look at the stories of businesses, of modern entrepreneurs, how they began, they've done all that. They've had all those obstacles from how to penetrate a market, how to make a product work, and all the taxes, the regulations from the governments. And if they're lucky, they succeed, and with the help of others in the market, thanks to voluntary negotiations, and uh, make the world a little bit better every time. Now, that's road to me. We've seen a rapid increase in average incomes in the past 200 years, and you think that entrepreneurial activity is behind this? Definitely. I think it's down to basically two things, if we're looking at the basic principles. It's freedom for entrepreneurs, for innovators, for businesses to think out new ideas, to look at better methods of producing things and services that people like. That's one aspect, the freedom for the producer. The other thing is the freedom for the consumer to pick the best alternatives they can see on the market right now for the moment, which means that even the businesses or the entrepreneurs who felt like they wanted to take a break from uh, constantly innovating and producing in a better way, they have to do it because otherwise the consumer would pick something else. Now, there are other things to this, but the freedom for the producer and the freedom for the consumer, that's what you need in place to create an incredible machine of innovation and wealth creation, constantly better methods at producing what we want and what what we need at less cost to us. It's absolutely true that markets have made things more accessible, but this access is not evenly distributed. Why do some nations lag behind? First of all, there's always some sort of uneven distribution when it comes to innovations and new goods and services and technologies. And that's only natural. It can't be distributed to every single place around the world at the same time. We always see a new innovation, for example, the mobile phone. When we saw that in the 1980s, only the wealthiest could afford it because it cost something like $3,000. What happens next is that when they do that, when they buy this money, enters those companies and their research and, and innovation departments, and then they can lower the cost so that more people get it in the end. And now we can even see farmers in Kenya or Bangladesh using the mobile phone to get information on prices and markets and so on. So we need, we really need that uneven distribution in the beginning to create the more even distribution of technologies in the end. If you're a total egalitarian, you will always see the problems how it, in the beginning how only the wealthiest can afford new technologies. But that's the precondition for it to be created in the first place. But of course, we also see more unnatural problems, reasons why some nations really can't make it and do not get access to these things. Well, in many ways, I think this is because of their own policies, how they shut out new 
innovative ideas, they make it difficult for their own people to produce and to create in new innovative ways, perhaps because they protect the old industries in those areas. If you're an entrepreneur in sub-Saharan Africa, you need the approval from 10 different bureaucrats only to start selling bread to your neighbor or something like that. Of course, that means 10 opportunities for bribes, uh, 10 obstacles along the way. In the slums in Nairobi in Kenya, they have a saying, which is, it's not safe to carry cash around here in the slums because there are too many policemen. And the policemen, they want your cash. If you don't have those 10 approvals, you constantly have to pay them in order to continue with your production. Well, in that case, you can't get access to capital, you can't improve, you can't get more customers, and you can definitely not go global with your business ideas. And we see the same problem with trade. If you want to sell your goods and export them from South Africa to Zimbabwe, something like should take one minute to cross the border. Well, it takes you more in waiting periods, in time, in energy, in capital, in taxes and tariffs than it costs to ship them all the way from South Africa to the United States or to Sweden. There's so much corruption, so many obstacles to innovative ideas around the world, which makes it really difficult for many places. And sometimes in our countries, in the Western world, we make it even more difficult. If someone goes through all those heroic efforts to produce things and avoid all the bureaucracy, all those regulations, well, then we have our tariffs, we have our quotas, which makes it difficult and sometimes impossible for people from poor countries to sell their goods to our places. And then they don't get the benefits of scale, and in that case, they can't make their production more efficient. Can you think of any instances when regulation or government intervention are beneficial to commerce, for example, in creating and setting up institutions? Well, we definitely need the government to create the basic system of rules, the rule of law, so that we have clear and stable property rights so that people can get access to capital and the safety in commerce, which that means, and to uphold the rules of trade, of the contracts that people enter into. So that's rules that really encourage, that facilitate business and entrepreneurship. But most of the regulation today is more like obstacles to that. And in many cases, there are also attacks on those basic rules. Anytime the government enters and says that someone cannot produce something without a specific license or if they don't have a specific relationship to the government, they cannot sell something to another country or import something from another country. Well, then that's actually an attack on the very rule of law, the equality before the law that we need the government to uphold. All right, now just to wrap this up, what kind of research are you working on now? Right now I'm trying to come up with some way of visualizing these ideas in order to create a television documentary or a TV series on precisely these ideas. I wrote a book recently, only in Swedish so far, called When Man Created the World, precisely about entrepreneurship and innovation. I will try to get that translated into English and then into television, which is a completely different language altogether. The majority of support for the Cato Institute's work comes from individuals, and Cato depends solely on tax-deductible contributions to provide the public with a wealth of free resources, including this podcast. We hope you'll consider supporting or even joining Cato. For information, please go to www.cato.org.